I don't know if you remember, but last fall I went to a preacher's conference in Edinburgh. And one of the things we did was look at books of the Bible that we quote bits and pieces from, but some ever preach from. And one of those books was Deuteronomy. By the time the conference was over, we had a complete outline of ideas on how to preach from Deuteronomy and why that was important. But given the time of year, it was too late for me to start something at that point because we'd run out of time before Advent and Christmas and what I planned to preach for that period. And after Christmas, Cindy and I went on a holiday. And now we're back after a couple of weeks and our battle with jet lag is over and I can finally take us through the parts of Deuteronomy that highlights God's redemptive love for his people. So Cindy said for the next several weeks we're going to dig into a part of the Bible that people never read and sometimes find a bit boring if they do. But hopefully this series will change people's opinion of that as I try to open your eyes to the importance of this part of Scripture. And I, I really sincerely mean that because as I learned, Deuteronomy is one of the most, if not the most, decisive book in Scripture because it highlights God's sovereignty and greatness in an active way that pushes the Israelites forward. At the same time, it also shines a bright light on God's love and care for the Israelites, despite their repeated apostasy and rebellion. Then, just as importantly, it reiterates and reinforces the characteristics that exemplify God's peoples individually and as a people individually and as a group. Essentially, essentially this book gives us a picture of God that's personal, eternal, omnipotent, purposeful, and loving. And as I said a moment ago, it's a vivid example of the nature and work of redemption. But as it does all the things I've mentioned, the words of Moses also reminded the Israelites that their relationship with God needs to be central to who they are. And to hold on to that as they step into Canaan and claim the land that God's given them, which is something the Jewish name of the book clearly points out, because in Hebrew the title is actually Devarim, which means these are the words. The title that we all know it by, Deuteronomy, was coined 1,500 years later, when Jewish scholars translated the entire Old Testament into Greek at the request of King Ptolemy II, so that it could be added to the collection of the writings stored in the great library of Alexandria. Now, if you were to read Deuteronomy as if it were a book written in a series, you'd quickly realize that there's nothing new in it, and then you'd ask for your money back. That's because you'd have seen 99% of it in, when you read Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Not that any of those are going to keep you awake at night either. Basically, the whole book is three rather lengthy sermons meant to help the Israelites separate their culture and faith from the peoples around them and to prepare them for life in the Holy Land. It was literally written to help them know what it meant to be a Jew and what it meant to be God's people, which is why this sermon is titled, The God Who Speaks. Because as we look at this passage, we'll see God speaking to the Israelites about their past in verses 1 through 4, and in their future in verses 5 through 8. After that, 
We all learn what it means to live in community as God's people in verses 9 through 18. So let's look at each of those and see what God wants to show us. When this story opens, the Israelites are perched on the northeastern border of Canaan after spending the last 40 years wandering through the Sinai Desert as a result of their disobedience. But now their days as nomads were finally coming to an end. At the same time, Moses also knows that he won't be allowed to leave them any further. And that his life is coming to an end due to his own disobedience. So he's using these last few days or weeks to prepare the Israelites for the next step in their journey. These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the wilderness east of the Jordan, that is in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Gizahab. It takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Seir Road. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all that the Lord had commanded him concerning them. This was after he had defeated Sion, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, and that Edrei had defeated Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. Although it sounds a little cold and chronological in English, this first set of verses isn't simply an impersonal historical account of events. It's actually written like an ancient epic. And it's meant to paint a picture of the Israelites' past and then serve as a reminder of how far they've come. That's because this is a new generation of Israelites. The previous one, the one that had disobeyed God and didn't enter the Holy Land of Kadesh Barnea had perished as they wandered the wilderness for 40 years. And that's what Moses wants this new generation to remember. He wants them to think about their parents and grandparents who passed away. And about every place they've walked or camped for the last 40 years. But along with that, he also wants them to see God's care. And the prominent role he's played in their lives since this journey began. At this point here in their journey, Moses is essentially a motivational speaker. A motivational speaker who's reiterating the Israelites' covenant relationship with God by pointing out both the issues of the past and the positives of the future. More importantly, he's reminding them of God's place as their king, as well as the cost of their parents' disobedience, and what's at stake if they're disobedient as well. And that's something that all of us need to because in the hustle and bustle of ordinary and modern life, we seldom slow down to think about and appreciate our relationship with God. As a result, we sometimes lose sight of God's providential care and role in our lives, and we're subsequently unable to rest in the reality of what He's done for us in Jesus Christ, which leaves us vulnerable to the same kind of fears and misapprehension that led to the Israelites having to wander the desert for 40 years. And that's why God uses the next set of verses 
to prevent the Israelites from repeating their previous mistakes by pointing them outward and into the future. <coughs> East of the Jordan in the territory of Moab, Moses began to expound this law saying, The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Break camp and advance into the hill country of the Amorites. Go to all the neighboring peoples in the Arabah, in the mountains, in the western foothills, in the Negev, and along the coast to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon as far as the great river Euphrates. See, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land the Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to their descendants after them. Although it's Moses that's speaking, He's simply reiterating God's command to take possession of the land they've been given. It was the same challenge they disobeyed 40 years earlier, and it cost them terribly. Just as he had the first time, God was exercising his sovereign authorities. He works out his divine purposes in the midst of human history. A history that often makes people reading scripture uncomfortable because God seemingly and unjustly strips the land away from the peoples of Canaan and gives it to the Israelites. Despite how that narrative makes God appear, he's not being capricious. Instead, he's exercising judgment and passing sentence as a sovereign king. And stripping the land away from predatory warlike peoples that preyed on the weak and vulnerable and that practiced human sacrifice along with other violent pagan rituals. In fact, there's archaeological evidence that suggests that these cultures, these were cultures whose level of militarism and violence far exceeds anything we can even imagine. Which is why we need to exercise some discretion and humility instead of simply criticizing and casting doubt over passages such as Genesis 15 16 or Leviticus 18 verses 24 through 28 where God calls these peoples to account. But having said that, we can't assume that God was giving the land to the Israelites because they were especially moral or faithful. Because they weren't. And that's more than evident through the first four books of the Bible and later on in Deuteronomy. That's why God would tell them, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. What we're seeing is God honoring his promise to being faithful to his covenant with Abraham. At the same time, it's a great example of the continuity in the Old Testament as well as being a picture of God's sense of commitment and the depth of his relationship with the Israelites. And that's very noticeable in the wording because it isn't solely covenantal and legal. Just as with the earlier verses, it's personal. 
Because God is identifying himself with a particular people in the same way he identifies with us through Jesus Christ. But the words of these verses are also a challenge. God is daring them to have a vision of themselves as a great nation. And to understand the significance of what he's asking them to do. It's important for us to grasp that. Because God may take us out of our comfort zone and ask us to do something totally unexpected. Just as he did with Abraham. And just as he was doing with the Israelites in this case. And it's that same sense of discomfort Moses recognized and dealt with in the last seven verses as he outlined God's command that his people live in community after they've established themselves in their new homeland. At that time I said to you, you are too heavy a burden for me to carry alone. The Lord your God has increased your numbers so that today you are as numerous as the stars in the sky. May the Lord, the God of your ancestors, increase you a thousand times and bless you as he has promised. But how can I bear your problems and your burdens and your disputes all by myself? Choose some wise understanding and respected men from each of your tribes and I will set them over you. You answered me, what you propose to do is good. So I took the leading men of your tribes, wise and respected men, and appointed them to have authority over you as commanders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, of tens, and as tribal officials. And I charged your judges at that time, hear the disputes between your people and judge fairly. Whether the case is between two Israelites or between an Israelite and a foreigner residing among you. Do not show partiality in judging here, both small and great alike. Do not be afraid of anyone. For judgment belongs to God. Bring me any case too hard for you, and I will hear it. And at that time I told you everything you were to do. Unlike the surrounding cultures, Israel didn't have a king. And their tribal structures were no longer viable because the scripture said they were essentially more numerous than the stars in the sky. Besides that, and like other cultures and communities, there were also governance, legal and relationship issues that impacted and affected community life. Which is why they needed a community structure that would display the qualities God expected of his people, while withstanding the strain inherent in a theocracy. Now, though simple, the design was very practical. And along with the moral imperatives and members of Leviticus had set a standard the surrounding cultures couldn't match. What's more important is it contains an inherent sense of righteousness and justice that's coupled with a good dose of equality. Something that left no room for prejudice, envy, strife, or malice. In a very direct way, God was saying the characteristics I just mentioned are incompatible with life in the faith community. That he wouldn't tolerate the Israelites sliding down to the levels that he condemned the people of Canaan for. As much as anything, these verses were openly daring the Israelites to be different in the same way God's daring us to be different as individuals and as a church. Beyond that, there's an expectancy that readers will exercise a special level of integrity 
wisdom, and understanding. And that social injustice norms will reflect a genuine and authentic sense of care that points people towards God instead of away from Him. It's important we recognize that. Because it points to the reality that our right and responsibility to govern is directly tied to our relationship with God. Because the level of integrity he requires of leaders is virtually impossible without that connection. And the only way for us to make that connection is through Christ's work on the cross. What it all comes down to as a community, and especially for leaders within that community, is that there's no room for the self-oriented grandstanding we often see in public life. Which is one of the things St. Paul was reminding the Philippians of when he wrote, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Having said all that I have this morning, the question at this point is, how does this apply to me? How does this apply to us? First and foremost, I think God wants us to look back on our lives. Back beyond the sense of hurt and loss we've all experienced as part of our own wilderness journey. So we see his faithfulness and recognize that he's been there at every bump, detour, and wreck we've experienced in life. Along with that, he's daring us to set aside any resentment or doubt we still have for him and to allow the Holy Spirit to replace it with a deep and abiding trust that provides the sense of fulfillment and peace that often seems to elude us. In addition to both of those, God's challenging us to stop making self-conscious excuses, to step outside of our personal history and comfort zone and be the witnesses and missionaries he's asking us to be. And that's because Kalboki, Cromartie, and the Black Isle need the gospel as much or more than any exotic or foreign land. God wants us to make time for the people around us, and not simply the people we're comfortable with. Admittedly, that's not easy, especially given people's often unfavorable and cynical view of Christianity and of the church. A view that sadly may have been earned by its own past lack of grace. Regardless of that, we're called to be obedient, to step into our discomfort in the same way Christ went to the cross. Because it's then, when we leave ourselves behind and trust in God's grace, that the world around us will see Jesus and hear. God's still small voice calling them away from the soul-crushing wilderness they're wandering through and into the life-giving redemptive peace echoed in the words, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we begin this new year, open our eyes to those unforeseen and unexpected encounters you put in front of us. Engender the sense of trust we often lack, and like the Israelites, help us take that first step into the unknown and into the land you have promised. And then enable us to visibly live lives that serve as a witness to your mercy, grace, and love, 
that draws the unbelieving world toward the salvation you offer each of us in Jesus Christ. In his mighty and powerful name we pray. Amen.